Hello, my name is Alex Chappelle, and today I want to discuss the topic of sustainability and more precisely how the mainstream version of it differs from vernacular forms of sustainability. To do this, I will first talk about how sustainability became what we know it as today. Then, I will present two very different versions of sustainability introduced by Maryam Greenberg. Finally, I will discuss how mainstream science, for the most part, has largely ignored these types of sustainabilities. The environmental movement as a whole has a long and rich history which eventually led to sustainable lifestyles and practices. For our purposes, we will be focusing on when these lifestyles and practices started to gain more of a mainstream following, as well as a more global and cultural influence. In 1987, in what is known as the Brundtland Commission Report, the UN defined sustainable development as follows. Humanity has the ability to make development sustainable to ensure that it meets the needs of the present without compromising the ability of future generations to meet their own needs. The World Commission on Environment and Development expands this definition by framing sustainable development on economic growth, ecological protection, and political will. This very much resembles the three E's of sustainability mentioned in Pozzello's environmental communication and the public sphere those being environmental protection, economic health, and social equity. These three E's help us better understand what sustainability is as it is more interdisciplinary than regular environmental science and aims to resolve additional problems along with environmental ones. Of course, this definition of sustainability is still broad and it leaves room for different types of people to promote specific types of sustainability. Most environmentalists in Western society advocate for an ecotopian vision of sustainability, that in which human society integrates with nature without overburdening the natural systems in place. To get a better sense of this vision, let us look at Mary Ann Greenberg's What on Earth is Sustainable? Greenberg is particularly interested in California, as she describes the state as a pioneer in environmental policy. In Greenberg's description of eco-oriented societies, she explains eco-cities as a place where an urban grid is symbiotically interwoven with its ecosystems, enabling buildings, creeks, and roads to harmoniously sustain both human and non-human life. While this vision of sustainability appears to be most desirable, Greenberg explains that there are many perspectives excluded from this future. Greenberg defines these excluded visions as vernacular sustainabilities, most commonly meaning a way of life that preserves an ecological balance while at the same time being able to earn a living and express one's culture. Greenberg says that these sustainabilities are practiced by indigenous peoples, immigrant groups, rural to urban migrants, and the rural and urban poor. These sustainabilities differ from what we might consider mainstream because they arise more out of necessity and survival rather than from ideology or beliefs. To give a more detailed description of how vernacular societies describe sustainability, let us turn our attention to Professor Pierjo Cristina Vertanen's article, Introduction Toward More Inclusive Definitions of Sustainability. In her assessment of what indigenous communities consider as sustainability, Vertanen explains the importance that indigenous people draw from understanding relations with humans as well as non-human beings. 
Because of these relations, quote, their knowledge production of what constitutes sustainability is produced contextually, locally, and is based on experiences from multiple generations, unquote. This is in contrast to a more Western view of sustainability that Vertanen describes as, quote, largely drawn from individualistic, conventional human-based approaches. Dr. Ranjith Deratni, an associate professor of architecture at the University of Bahrain, wrote a research article titled Towards Sustainable Development, Lessons from Vernacular Settlements of Sri Lanka. In it, Dorotny explores how historical vernacular societies have largely been ignored when discussing and imagining how sustainability can help us today. According to Dorotny, they, indigenous communities, are often told that the ideas they possess are inadequate and their methods old-fashioned and ill-suited to the sophisticated new society. Dorotny's expressing that the modern world is categorizing indigenous communities as old-fashioned and it would appear that their ideas aren't welcome in discussions about the future. Deirotny makes the case, however, to listen to such communities. First, indigenous communities provide an abundance of local observations by peoples whose lives are tied to the land in complex and intimate ways. Deirotny argues that this is important because modern research cannot make up the years of observations passed down by generations. Second, since indigenous knowledge accounts for the social well-being of the community, such experience can complement traditional science, which Dorotny says can only study entire system behaviors that can be extrapolated only from known conditions and processes. Notice how this argument is very similar to the difference between sustainability and environmental science. Lastly, Dorotny claims that excluding specific problem-solving approaches in this case, indigenous knowledge about sustainability is counterproductive. Before I continue, I would like to emphasize a point that Dr. Dorotny makes about vernacular and modern sustainability. He says, quote, no argument supports the dichotomy of indigenous versus modern, where one is assumed better than the other. By making this statement, Dorotny is emphasizing how each type of sustainability has its own benefits and trade-offs. If this is true, however, why does the modern form of sustainability appear to have a certain sense of exceptionalism over vernacular types of sustainabilities? To put it bluntly, it is because mainstream sustainability has received what is known as symbolic legitimacy, a perceived correctness to a problem relative to other competing responses. Mainstream sustainability has achieved this, according to a Southern Cross University study, because people want to be environmentally conscious of their actions. To do this, people have picked up sustainable habits, such as recycling regularly, paying for greener products, and using eco-friendly items, such as reusable bags. According to the study, 79% of respondents also believe that governments should be more involved in solving the issue through sustainable policies. It is evident in the study that people use a cost-benefit analysis when deciding whether or not to live a sustainable lifestyle. For example, the number one reason people choose to live more sustainable lives is to leave a better planet for future generations. The cost is to maybe lead a more expensive life while advocating for common sense policies. While this technical approach appears to be commonplace when looking at the study, one actually finds that this study only represents people living in developed countries. Indeed, the research that I cited only had respondents from the United States and Australia. 
If we want to better understand what vernacular sustainabilities want to achieve, sustainability must try to become more inclusive to new perspectives. So what is the barrier that Indigenous communities face when participating in environmental communication? There is arguably more than one, but it is a certainty that they have been a victim of what is known as testimonial injustice. Testimonial injustice, as seen in Miranda Fricker's Epistemic Injustice, Power and the Ethics of Knowing, is when someone or a community of people are ignored because of their identity. Side note, testimonial injustice is also when someone or a group of people are given unwarranted credit for their opinion given their identity. What is relevant is that indigenous and local knowledge is largely being ignored by mainstream science. This is observed in a literature review written by David Lamb and others. The team's objective was to find how indigenous and local knowledge is used in articles about transformation in the sense of large environmental system changes. Using a search string in the Scopus database, they found only four out of 81 papers had applied indigenous observations to their research. Using this finding, they came up with two possible conclusions. Either they had an improper methodology, or there was in fact, a lack of consideration of indigenous and local knowledge in sustainability transformation research. If the latter is true, a possible explanation that the team provides is that scientific methods find it difficult to include indigenous knowledge because it, quote, is often regarded as subjective, arbitrary, and based on qualitative observations of phenomena and change. Nevertheless, the team suggests that indigenous knowledge should be used more often for more or less the same reasons that Dr. Durotny offers. A situated example of indigenous people being ignored when it comes to environmental issues can be seen during the construction of the Dakota Access Pipeline. The pipeline was a project to more efficiently deliver oil from North Dakota to Illinois until it was met with protests because the Army Corps of Engineers were accused of not doing a thorough environmental impacts assessment. According to Kyle White in his paper, the Dakota Access Pipeline, Environmental Injustice and U.S. Colonialism, the assessment process used were, quote, known to lack sensitivity and accountability to indigenous people's concerns, rights, and capacities to participate on genuinely equal footing with powerful private and government parties. The primary tribe involved, the Standing Rock Sioux tribe, cited the importance of water protection to the community and the, quote, time-tested indigenous knowledges that prescribe respectful moral relations with the water and other non-human beings, unquote. It is these types of knowledge that modern science has a difficulty integrating because of the abstract nature of it. Thus concludes this episode, in which we discuss the difference between mainstream and vernacular sustainability and how the two can supplement each other in a way that creates a more inclusive dialogue for further environmental research. My hope is that you learned a little bit more about the popularization of sustainability, as well as the testimonial injustice that indigenous communities face when trying to share their generational knowledge. An active effort must likely be made to integrate marginalized voices, but if it brings us closer to being able to solve complex environmental problems, then it is an effort that is worth making. Thank you.